Thank you for that message in song. What a point there. I belong to the Lord. I am not my own. If we remember that, that would be good for us as we move forward in our lives. Take your Bibles this morning. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. And we'll go ahead and dismiss Junior Church as well at this time. Junior Church, so uh, those young people ages 4 to 8 years old can go ahead and be dismissed. For Junior Church, 2 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to be focusing uh, primarily on verses uh, 7 and 8 this morning. But we will pick up in verse uh, 6. Uh, so hopefully this will be a little bit familiar. Uh, hopefully, because Pastor just finished preaching through uh, the book of 2 Peter. But we're going to drill down into a couple verses uh, here uh, that as we went through this, that Pastor also touched on. But verses 6 through 8 of 2 Peter chapter 2 says this, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Second Peter chapter 2 here, we're going to focus in on verses 7 and 8. But just to give us, again, Pastor just preached through this, but just to set this in the context before we drill down into what we're going to be focusing on this morning. This is where, in the context of Second Peter... Peter begins to deal directly with the false, false teaching related to the return of Christ. So what he's doing in chapter 2 here, he's setting us up for what the, one of the primary arguments of false teachers to buy into their, their worldly ways, uh, the way they would have us to live, the ways that false teachers can take advantage of, of us. And one of the primary ways that they do that they want us to question the reality of God's work. Does God really do what he says he's going to do? Does God really judge people for their sin? And you see this, jump ahead, he's preparing us in the first part of chapter 2 for what comes in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 of 2 Peter and verses 3 and 4. It says this. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust. And what are they going to say, verse 4? And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Oh, God, you know what he did? He just set the world in motion and stepped away. It doesn't matter how you live. He doesn't judge sin. He won't return to judge sin. But what is very interesting as you turn to chapter 2 here as he prepares for what's coming, right? Peter makes it clear in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that the false teachers will be judged. How do we know this? Peter uses three scriptural illustrations from the Old Testament of judgment that has already fallen for, fallen for sin. He references the judgment of the angels in the book of Genesis. And he, he also references here, as you look at these first few verses leading up to where we uh, just read, he references 
that, that minor detail that happened in the book of Genesis, do you recall something called a worldwide flood? Right? As judgment for sin? And then, as we're going to be focusing on here this morning, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, who had gone far past any bounds of normal kinds of sins into the realm of homosexuality, which is, as you read Romans chapter 1, right, as God gives people over to homosexuality, that, that is a sign of God's judgment having already fallen upon a people, upon a nation. That is part of God's judgment. And then, obviously, the ultimate, God ended up to Sodom and Gomorrah, rained fire from heaven, totally wiping Sodom and Gomorrah from the face of the earth. So then, as, they, as you get to then, as you get into chapter 3, right, that, and they ask that question, oh, God set things up. Is God really going to return to judge sin one day? Oh, folks, yes, he will, because he already has he will do what he says, and there's plenty of testimony to that in Scripture in a variety of ways that we could spend the rest of the day, of the morning, talking about these different aspects of how God has worked, of how he brings judgment. So don't fall for this seeming success of false teachers is where Peter is going here, because in chapter 1, if you'll remember, we have everything that we need to live the life that God wants us to live Recorded for us where? In his word. And so that's kind of the context, again, just to set that briefly. And again, that should be familiar because pastor has just preached through that. But we are going to drill down into what's very interesting in this context. God gives us a window into the soul of a man who is influenced by that type of wickedness that you find in Sodom and Gomorrah. And his name was Lot. If you remember the story of Lot, Abraham and Lot, as they left their homeland, they got to a point as their flocks and their herds and their families grew, they needed to separate, go their own ways. And Lot chose the well-watered plains over towards Sodom and Gomorrah and eventually moved into Sodom and Gomorrah. What type of influence with what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, what type of influence does that have on a man or woman of God? And I want you to note the description. Three times it's mentioned that Lot, Lot was just or a righteous man. Look at it in verses 7 and 8 again. It says, and delivered who? Just Lot. There it's mentioned the first time. Vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man, there it is the second time, dwelling among them and seeing and in hearing, vexed is what? His righteous soul. The character of Lot here, he is described as righteous or just three different times. And again, very interesting. So what does that mean about Lot? It means this. One writer put it this way. Lot, he maintained his faith in God maintained a personal sense of what was just and upright and refused to condone the corruption around him. Yet in spite of him being a righteous man and not caving personally to the pressures that were around him, folks, the worldly influence around us has an impact on our hearts and lives. 
Now, we do not believe, folks, in our hearts and lives, we are not the product of our environment, right? <laughs> no, we absolutely would deny that. We aren't born into this world a blank slate. We are born into this world as sinners. And if there's any change to that in our hearts and lives, it's because of God's grace reaching down and saving us and changing us and giving us a relationship with him. So we are not the product of our environment, but counterbalance to that just a tad, that does not mean that environment doesn't matter. Ask Lot about the influence of Sodom on his family. When God finally decided to judge Sodom, rain fire from heaven and destroy that city, Lot may have maintained his own personal sense of righteousness and not caved to the pressure, but guess who he lost in the process? His family. Some of them stayed in Sodom. He went and pleaded with his son-in-laws, we need to get out of here. You know what they did? They laughed. His wife, as they ran from the city, they were instructed by the angels that God sent to warn them to get them out of there. You leave and don't look back. As they were running away, his wife, you can imagine, leaving, leaving some of your children behind, leaving your life behind, she turned and she looked, and in that moment she turned to a pillar of salt. Lost his wife. He had two of his daughters that came with them. And his daughters committed acts of incest with their father to preserve the family line. So no, folks, you are not the product of your environment, but that doesn't mean that environment doesn't matter. There's an influence. See, folks, Lot's escape from Sodom, as one writer put it, the Lot's escape from Sodom's fate was not due to his own timely foresight, but wholly to God's intervention on his behalf. And that's where we take comfort, folks. And we're going to talk more about that uh, tonight. But this was God's grace at work in Lot's life, and grace ultimately makes the difference. But environment still leaves its mark on your life. So the question is this, right? As we have in verses 7 and 8 specifically open to us in the greater context of 2 Peter, we're drilling down into a heart of a man. How does the world, how does secular culture outside of the church have an impact on the soul of a righteous person, of someone who knows and loves God? How does the world impact your life and God, under inspiration of Scripture, opens the soul of a man to show us so that we can be on guard. We can see in our own hearts and lives, how is the world having an influence on me and my family and where I find myself? Note the first principle that we see in verse 7 about how the world impacts your life is this. Ungodly lifestyles will bring an exhausting pressure on your life. You might call it oppression. Look at verse 7. It says, And delivered just Lot, who was first of all vexed 
with the filthy conversation of the wicked. That word that's translated vex there, obviously an English word that we don't generally use a whole lot in the English language anymore, but the idea of that word that's translated vexed is this idea. It means to be sore distressed. I think we can all understand that. You ever been sore distressed? Or how about this, more practical, have you ever been worn down? exhausted or deeply distressed oppressed what's interesting this verb here that's translated vex it's a present passive okay in the original so it's something that in our lives as we interact as we leave here and we interact with the influences of of the world around us of secular culture This is presently something that's going on in some way in how many of our lives? All. It's constantly something that we're dealing with. And it's passive, right? It's not something you don't have to go looking for it. Just as you go about your life, it's you're being acted upon as there are influences in the world presently, daily, things you bump into, whether it's at work, on the job, within your family, within things that you're seeing or watching online, things that you come across, there is a pressure that the world, that culture, that Satan is trying to use to influence you and to oppress you. And that's where Lot found himself. There was a great burden upon his life because he had chose to settle down in a place where it was a culture that was gone wild. Vexed with what? What was it that brought this pressure upon him specifically in verse 7? Read it again. It says, And delivered just Lot, who was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, the wicked people in Sodom and Gomorrah. That word that translated their conversation isn't just talking about the things that they said. Literally, the idea of that word that's translated conversation in verse 7 is the idea that this distress he was under came from the sodomites' lifestyle. So the word conversation there is broader than just things that were coming out of their mouth. It actually referred to their lifestyle, how they were living their life, the sin that was lived out, that was rampant in Sodom and Gomorrah. As Lot was exposed to that, maintained his own personal sense of righteousness, did not contone, stayed away from it, did not get involved. Yet, what kind of influence did that have on his inner man? There was an oppression. We ought to be aware. We ought to realize but that's what's at work in our hearts and in our lives. And this was the oppression of this, this lifestyle. And it refers to them as the wicked at the end of verse 7. That word that's translated wicked there is the idea of being rebellious and unprincipled. It's the idea of purposely going against the idea of what is right and wrong according to God and his word. It's defying what the law requires. The word here that's translated wicked, it has the sense of something regarded as having divine sanction. And I am going, whatever is the right way, guess what I'm going to do? The exact opposite. 
They openly rebelled against that which had divine approval. If this is what God wants, I'm going to do the exact opposite. So can you begin to understand why there was this oppressive impact of culture on Lot's life? Notice what it's called there as it describes it leading up to that last phrase there. And delivered just Lot, who was vexed with the filthy conversation. Filthy is the idea of talking about a lascivious lifestyle. It was total moral debauchery. Totally had given themselves over. Right? In Romans 1, as I alluded to in introduction, when it talks about this idea, when people get into homosexuality, folks in a society and in a culture, that is a mark where God has said, fine, you don't want what I want for your life. God steps back and lets you have your own way. Going your own way, lost in sin, you will end up exactly where Sodom and Gomorrah did. But my question is this. If this is the influence of a lost culture on the life of a believer, wouldn't it be helpful to know how specifically that pressure is felt? Where does it come from? How does, how does that kind of pressure get into my heart and in my life? How specifically is that pressure felt? Look at verse 8. There's two specific ways that are referenced about how it happens practically, how that oppression comes. Verse 8 says this, for that righteous man, first of all, by doing what? Dwelling among them. He had chosen to settle down there. And then the next two ways, also in what? In seeing and hearing. Vexed his righteous soul <clears throat> from day to day with their unlawful deeds. <clears throat> So how specifically is this pressure felt? Second principle that we see is this. This pressure is felt specifically through what you see and hear. This oppression of the world, of secular culture on your heart and life, is felt specifically through what you see and hear. So he expounds now in verse 8 on how his soul was pressured and tortured. First of all, he says there in verse 8, and dwelling among them. He had permanently settled down among them. It was his place of residence. In other words, Lot got comfortable with the world. And if you go back and read the story in Genesis, right, we find initially when Lot moved into this area, it says he pitched his tent, and he says specifically that he pitched it away from Sodom and Gomorrah. And then as you go through the story, he gets more and more comfortable. I can build a good business. Life can be good. Whatever the rationalization was, where does he find himself? He moved right in. He got comfortable. But what was the specific cause of his distress? Verse 8 makes it very clear, right? In seeing and in hearing what he personally saw and heard. Around him, folks, make no mistakes, it has an impact on your life. How often was Lot dealing with this? <clears throat> Look at verse 8 again. For that unrighteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and in hearing, 
vexed his righteous soul from day to day. Folks, it was day in, day out, constant pressure that he was facing. And what did it do there as we look at verse 8 again? For this righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and in hearing vexed his righteous soul. He tormented his righteous soul. Vexed, the word that's translated vexed there in verse 8 was a word that was used literally for tormenting someone. It was literally used for torture and judicial examination. But here, obviously, it's talking about his soul. It's figurative, describing severe mental pain, which Lot continued to inflict upon himself. This word, if you want to picture an illustration of it, this word that's translated vexed here in verse 8, it's used in other contexts in Scripture. It's used for ships that are like struggling in a headwind. Generally, when you're on the water, what's the easiest way to go? The way that the wind is blowing. And if you're trying to go to the other direction in a ship on the water, it creates some issues. And that, that's the idea here of this word. If you're a righteous man seeking to honor God by how you live, the influence of the world, of secular culture that is on its way to hell, separated from God, it's like struggling, it's like pushing against the wind. You're trying to go, your focus of your life is in a different direction, yet it has its impact. He tortured his soul, the center of the inner man. Specifically, some might call this the really where you, the, the, the feelings and emotions, those things that tug on your heartstrings. It has its impact, it leaves its mark. <clears throat> he vexed from day to day how by seeing and in hearing the wickedness and unrighteous deeds of these people. That's how he vexed his soul. So, what things. Are you this morning allowing in your life that you are seeing and are hearing that are torturing your righteous soul? Don't you think that's a good question for us to ask ourselves? What things are you allowing in your life right now that you are seeing and hearing that are torturing your righteous soul? It's a good question for us all to ask. We're all bumping in to the culture, how often? Just like Lot, day in and day out. Whether that be in the workplace or through different avenues of life. And the issue for Lot was the part of his life where this pressure came from was his life among specifically the ungodly of this world. What's the impact on your heart and your life? This is how the character of the age where he found himself was impacting him. And no doubt there is evil in our day and age that impacts our lives as well. One commentator said this. To get us thinking, to challenge us with where we're at, to, to wake us up to how culture may be having an influence on our hearts and lives, on our families... One writer said this, Indeed, one of the characteristics of our age is that there appears 
to be no discernible difference between the lifestyles of those inside and those outside the church. Wow. Again, I would say hopefully maybe not this church, but again, Christian culture even at large. This is a commentator not in our circle of churches. And this is his personal thought of application about what he sees happening in the church at large. What might that encourage us in our hearts and lives as we begin to think about direct application of this, folks, just because... There are other Christian people that may be doing or allowing certain things in their hearts and in their lives. Just because they're Christians, does that mean that everything they're doing is okay? Because culture has its influence. What are some avenues of influences practically in our day and age? I've, just, I've got a list of about two or three examples just, just to get us thinking. And this is, we could spend the rest of our time talking about these types of things in our culture that are influencing us. But what about something that's come along in the last 20 years? Probably something that almost everyone has in their pocket, right? What is this? Right? Smartphone. Brought many temptations. So we're at a point in our day and age, you don't even have to leave your bedroom if you have one of these. And worldly environment and culture can just be eating you up and destroying your life, bringing oppression on you through what you go to on such a device, whether it's a smartphone or a computer or whatever it may be. <clears throat> How do we know this is an issue? I came across an article recently within the last few months, and statistics show that two of the biggest problems for teenagers and college students, you know what they are? Pornography and sexting. Sending inappropriate texts and pictures and videos of yourself in your teen and college peer group. You see, a Christian's use of technology, folks, demands safeguards against such issues. This is what's prevalent. If you have Christian young people in your, your home, if you have teenagers, if you have college students, right? This is what it says is the biggest problem with this. In your home for your kids, pornography and sexting, what are you doing? What boundaries are you setting to protect against the, the wrong influences through things that are beneficial, that have made our lives easier and better technology, but yet the world uses those things to what? To come in and destroy not only the lives of young people, but no doubt it creates temptation for adults as well in these same areas. Where are you at? What are you doing? What safeguards are you setting to help protect your life against getting into things you ought not be in that will oppress your righteous soul? Oh, I'm not doing it. Yeah, but I'll be entertained by it. I'll laugh about it, and it's kind of funny. And God says, no, it's not. You're oppressing your righteous soul. 
And that's going to have an impact beyond just you to your family. Ask Lot. Smartphones. What about when we think at culture at large? Think about the immorality that's run rampant and prevalent in our day and age. There's no, in culture at large, there is no biblical moral standard. What do I mean by that? In other words, the physical benefits our marriage are often involved in the dating relationship. That's expected in culture. Again, the physical benefits that God has says are in the context of marriage are often involved in the dating relationship. But God's standard, what is God's standard as we look at his word? God says this, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. So what is God's standard for the believer, for a Christian? There is no, no physical relationship before when? Before marriage. God's standard is that marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. So what does that mean? For, for the culture, right, their standard's totally different. Oh, as long as no one gets hurt, that's the standard. As long as nobody gets hurt, you know, just try it out. In fact, maybe even just move in together, see if you're compatible. You know, you don't want to make a commitment before you try it out. Folks, that's totally counter to God's way. So what does that mean, folks? That means for the Christian, right, the purpose of dating is for what? Marriage. Does that, do you think that just maybe that means we might need to approach it a little differently? What do I mean by that? Let's take two young kids, right? And you remember, all of us, can we, those of us that are older, remember back to your growing up, you remember the first guy or girl that you saw and it was like, oh, that's the one for me. Right, those feelings, the, the lightning, the fireworks, right? I mean, I found the one. Well, let's say that perhaps it is the one. And two young people, before they're at a point where they're able to get married, either mature enough or in a place to financially support a home, they get into a serious relationship, and we know what's the point of that. Where does it lead? Phys being physically consummated in the bounds of marriage, that's the goal. And if two young people get in a serious dating relationship before they're at a point of being able to be married, where does that leave them? It leaves them in a place where there's lots of temptation. You see, the Christian ought think far differently about this area. And that doesn't mean we have to have all the same boundaries and, and principles related to how all of that works, right? But I'm just telling you, the Christian ought think differently than the world. What about in this area, in our day and age, that many, many Christians have just thrown out the door? What about dress? 
God calls his people, as you look at scripture, there's two big principles related to how we dress. It's called modesty and distinction. God's people ought to protect their bodies for the one that they marry. That's the only person that needs to see. So when it comes to modesty, what is too revealing or too tight is a problem. It should be a problem for you. Again, we don't all, again, I'm not drawing any lines here. I know what my lines are personally, and hopefully you know what yours are. But at some point when it comes to modesty, you cross a line. When you cross that line, you're in sin. Do you have a line? Have you thought about it? Or again, is it, well, what, what's, what's everybody else doing? Well, they're doing it, so it must be okay. Wait a minute. We don't base what we do off of what other people do. Even Christian people do. We need to base what we do off what principles. What does God have to say about these things and what I ought to be doing? Not what everybody else is doing. And a growing problem in relation to even how we dress is distinction. God created us how? Back to Genesis 1. As male and female. Folks, that ought be evidenced and seen in how we dress. Men clearly dressing as men. Women clearly dressing as ladies, making it clear that I am who God created me to be and how he created me biologically, not what you identify as, God made you the way he wanted you to be, biologically as a male or a female. And we ought submit to God's order and how he chose to bring me into this world and let that be seen through how I live my life. That's how God has called us to live. Don't let there be any question marks and more and more Right, for my full-time job at this point, I work at UPS as a delivery driver. So I see, I'm out in Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti almost every day, and I see all kinds of things. I'm like, guy, girl, I... God says there ought not be questions about who we are as a male and a female. It ought be readily apparent, and God's people ought make choices in line with those principles. It shouldn't be up for debate. And our world is pushing an agenda that goes cross to all of these types of things. So again, those are just... Again, some, just throwing some things, up. those are principles from God's word that we ought be taking seriously. What does God think? How does God want me to live? These are areas that culture is bringing pressure. What have you done? What choices are you making to put yourself in a place to make choices that honor the principles of God's word? So what is the answer in these situations of life? We're just going to touch on it. And tonight in the, the evening session, 
We are going to try to take this a step further. We'll take the first 10 or so, 10 to 15 minutes to any thoughts or discussion related to what we talked about this morning. But to take this more towards, okay, this is a little bit more negative and discouraging, I guess you might say, challenging us with what's out there, with the problems, right? But you've got to understand the problem if you're going to be able to move forward in the right way. So how do you do that? Okay, we're going to talk more about that tonight. We're just going to allude to it. So what is the answer that, that is the help to us in these situations of life? Look at chapter 2, verse 9. Here's our hope. Look at what it says, chapter 2, verse 9 of 2 Peter. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Wow, are you thankful for that today? And to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. What's the third principle that we see? What is the answer to these situations in your life, folks? God is your deliverer in temptation. God is your deliverer in temptation. What a comfort. God knows how to deliver us out, out of these temptations and situations. And to ultimately, as he references at the end of verse 9, God will ultimately deal with the ungodliness of all men. It is not your job to worry about what everyone else is getting away with. And somehow justifying what you want to do. Turn your attention towards God. He is your help. He is your deliverer as you face the temptations of this life. He never forgets his own. Just as he delivered Lot and Noah when judgment fell, he will deliver you. Just a couple practical implications related to God's deliverance. How does God deliver from temptation? Well, there's some practical ways where some of the responsibility falls in your lap too. We don't just, oh, cry out. We need to cry out for God's grace. It is his grace. But there's some practical steps he wants you to take. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. And we usually stop with 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Thank you, Lord, that you'll provide a way of escape. Well, what is one of those primary ways of escape? We need to go to the first phrase of verse 14 in 1 Corinthians 10. And you know what it says? It says, so flee idolatry. One of the primary ways of escape practically is for you to what? Get up and walk away. Run away if you have to. Get out of the place of temptation. That's the escape. If you have a personal battle or struggle right now that's very real, don't walk into the place of temptation. Dear Lord, please help me. Give me your grace. Oh, God says do what? Stay out of there. Don't go to that app on your phone. Don't go to that website. Oh, dear Lord, help me not to see something I shouldn't. Oh. Lord, help. Get some accountability. Get some help. Get things on your phones. For, for our kids' phones, we have things we track where they're at, websites that they're going to. 
We know what they're doing on their phones. Block certain apps if you need to. Set time limits. Kids don't need access to their phones while they're laying in bed at night. After midnight, lots of things happen that shouldn't happen. Set boundaries. You flee temptation. Paul, as he writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, he said, you know what to do with youthful lust? He said, flee. Flee from youthful lust. Run. This is a situation being addressed. Living life among the ungodly and how it impacts your life. One writer said this. And this is a more lengthy quote here, so bear with me, but I think it's helpful again to hear from others. Helpful insights. He said this. The present is a time of trials for the righteous. Either because of the deeds that evil people do to them or because they must live in a world filled with evil. That's a battle we all have, folks. But this state is not permanent. You thankful for that? Verse 9 makes it very clear. There's an end, there's an end date to this battle. The time is coming when the Lord will deliver the righteous, while those practicing evil will be held for coming judgment. The histories of Noah and the angels and Lot and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah point to a far more awesome and fearful destiny for the world than any intermediate judgment. Yet this is a destiny filled with hope for the righteous. So folks, don't live for this moment. Live for the one that will last for all of eternity. Get it? God will come. God will deal with the ungodliness of this world, and we need to live like it when? Live like it now. So what can you take home? Some thoughts of application here for us before we leave this morning. The first principle to take home, the first lesson to take home is this, folks. Be alert to the oppressive influence of the world on your life. Folks, be alert. Don't, don't fall asleep. You know, it can be very easy. Oh, well, this is just the way it is. There's not much I can do about it. We get discouraged with the constant battle, don't we? It's not easy. Ever been tempted just to throw in the towel? Ah, it's not worth it anymore. We're in a battle, folks. Be alert. Stay on guard. Right? As, as Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence. And that word that's translated there, keep, in Proverbs 4.23, is the idea of to guard Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Why do you need to guard it? Because God's given us the window in 2 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8, into a window into the heart of a godly man who was being influenced by the oppression of the sinful deeds around him and the ultimate impact that that had on his family. How do you do that specifically? The second lesson we see in this passage is this. Specifically, 
How do you do that? You need to set a guard around your eyes and your ears. What is it? Verse 8 there. It was specifically this, this oppression came through the things that he saw and he heard. Set a guard. Set up safeguards. You know, there's, there's principles of Scripture. And if you go over the principle, right, once you cross, you break the principle, now you're in sin. So what are believers called to do? Here is the clear principle of God's word. If I cross this line, I'm in sin. So what should each of us do? We start making applications. In light of that, this is how I'm going to live my life. This is, the, this is the application I'm going to live by to keep me from crossing that barrier. Does that make sense? So we cannot, none of us can disagree about the principle. You cross, you break the principle, you're in sin. I don't care what you want to try to tell me or anybody else. Now where we may differ, right, we may make different applications. Some people's application may feel like maybe a little closer to the line of crossing into sin. Some may be wanting to be a little more careful and stay away. But folks, the clear idea is I need to be making applications based on the principles that I see in Scripture to help guard my life and young people specifically, right? This can be hard to understand, especially as you're becoming teenagers and getting older and closer to being out on your own. Young people, be thankful for the safeguards your parents set for you in regards to a couple areas we specifically mentioned, in regards to technology and dating to help protect you from getting into pornography and a physical relationship before you ought to. Your moral purity is at stake you need the boundaries and standards your parents and spiritual authorities set for you. And here's, here's where we can struggle with this, right, as, as young people. Well, I don't, I don't see that in the Bible, what you're asking me to do. Right? You're growing up. You're starting to think for yourself. I get it. But you need to remember, first of all, A, your parents are a lot more mature than you are, just to put it bluntly. And they live, they've lived, believe it or not, I know, I know parents are just, we're old fogies and we don't know about the world or how it works anymore these days. I get that. But we were your age at one point. And we faced the same temptations that you're facing. And your parents aren't crazy for what they're asking you to do. And again, that's where you've got to understand, right? There's the clear principle, right? You cross this line. But mom and dad, I'm not. I'm not what I want to do. But, but your parents are helping you set applications to protect you from getting there, right? That's what God calls us to do. And you even see this. If you want to look at the Old Testament law. You have the Ten Commandments. If you want to sum them up, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you see, there's multitudes of ways that that was, there's multitudes of applications in the Old Testament. And one of them is this idea. If you had flocks, if you had herds, right, if you have large animals that can do destruction and you weren't careful about 
fencing off and keeping your property maintained and your animal got out and caused problems or destruction force on someone else's property, you were responsible to do what? To reimburse. Well, I don't know. It doesn't say anything about that specifically in the Ten Commandments. Say, what was that? What is that? That's an application, right? In light of, here's the clear line. So what does that mean in practically in day-to-day life? For how you interact with other people, you've got to draw some lines for what that means. And parents, don't be afraid to draw those lines. That's what God calls us to do as parents. Young people, you need the boundaries and standards your parents and spiritual authorities set for you. You're going to struggle with this. Why? Because you look at the world. The world has no concern for purity. So they're going to do it differently. They're going to be doing things that you're not allowed to do at your age. Because by doing that, they're getting into things that they shouldn't be doing before God's plan for that. Young people, I encourage you to look to who God has put in your life. Spiritual leaders, parents, spiritual authorities, pastors, godly teachers, people in the church. Don't focus on what people your age have to say. I know that that's very difficult. Because right? all of us, we're all influenced by our peer group. But don't focus on what people your, your age have to say. Why? Because God calls you to listen to your parents. Read the book of Proverbs. There's the constant wisdom calls out to you. Listen to honor. Follow the law of your father and your mother. It will protect you. It will be life to you. God calls you, that's who you should be listening to. And then what about within the context of the church? If you read the first 10 verses or so of Titus chapter 2, we're not going to do that this morning for sake of time, but Titus chapter 2 gives us the biblical pattern for influence within the church. It's older men and older women teaching and training younger men and younger women. So young people, you know who you ought to, when you're looking for counsel and advice, you don't need to ask your buddy. Hopefully your buddy's got good advice, but that's not who you primarily need to be listening to. You know who you ought to be going to? Your parents, first of all, spiritual authorities, pastors. But God says other older men and women within the church. That's who God calls you to listen to, to follow to put your weight of influence on what they have to say. Look for counsel and advice. The point is this. Folks, we need to be looking for counsel and advice in the right place. And for all of us, it's within the... Con- here, just, just put me on. Uh, this thing's falling off. Just put me on the mic up here. That's within the context of the church. Look for counsel and advice in the right place. Your parents and other mature adults within the church, that's the primary influence. That's the primary voice you ought to be listening to. This should be your example, not culture, 
or what your peers are doing. And just a practical illustration of this, uh, my kids, uh, one of the churches I pastored at was in the Chicago area, and my kids in their younger days were very young at that point, but have kept in contact with some of the kids, and my kids went to camp with them this summer. One of the girls at one point, one of the conversations they were having referenced a restriction on her phone. Can you believe that? Parents putting restrictions on what she has access to on her phones. What a concept. And one of the young men who was there thought that was crazy. He's like, oh, I've got freedom. I can do whatever I want on my phone. That's craziness. I don't have any restrictions on my phone. And her response was this. She said, you know what? I'm thankful. I know my parents are doing this for me because they love me. Wow. Young people, that ought be your heart and your desire and your spirit. Have this spirit. Don't despise. Be thankful for and appreciate the people God has placed in your life. And then the third principle that we see in verse 9 here, the third lesson is this. Folks, look to God's grace for deliverance. Look to God's grace for deliverance. How does that work? What is God's grace doing in your heart and life? So I, as I alluded to earlier, we're going to take this a step. We have a little bit of discussion. Then I'd like to take this a step further. So positively then tonight, what then is, what is God's grace doing? There's also another person at work in your heart and life, and it's God's spirit who lives within you, ministering the grace of God to help you with that oppressive battle that you face. And that's the encouragement that we find. So I encourage you to be back tonight at 6 o'clock as we continue our study there. Let's stand together this, this morning with heads bowed and eyes closed. And I don't know what your need is or what God's doing in your heart and life specifically. But as we stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed, no doubt for all of us, as we've mentioned, this is a present struggle, a present battle. And I don't know the battle that you're facing but we all are facing one, and we need God's help and strength to be what he calls us to be. But if there's some area specifically, if there's some work God is doing in your heart and life directly, uh, with heads bowed and eyes closed as the uh, piano begins to play, if you would like to come kneel at the front or just sit in your chair there, or you do business with God, you do what he's calling you to do in these moments of silence together. go ahead and look this way again. Uh, thank you for your attention to the word this morning. Trust will continue to allow God to do his work in our hearts and lives as he would see fit. I do encourage you, if at all possible, to be back uh, tonight at six as we continue along this theme, allowing God to minister his grace 
uh, to help us overcome in the day and age that we find ourselves in. As we uh, close our time together, Brother Brad Howe, would you come and close us in prayer this morning? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, this message that uh, Pastor Lloyd has said yes to your call to preach against the wind, against the power, uh, prince of the power of the air in our culture and world. Day in and day out experience, Lord, we're thankful for clarity of your principles and your word as has been so uh, helpfully declared and for the, the promise of the effectiveness of your grace to deliver. Thank you, Lord, that we are not alone. Every one of us uh, right next to each other have something in common for sure that was brought out today helpfully. And bless our time as we would go in the remainder of this afternoon into this world, Lord, that we live victoriously uh, more than overcomers in your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.